0: When the punishment doesn't fit the crime, what's next? Who better to answer that question than a criminal attorney for more than 25 years, both a prosecutor and defense attorney, now one determined writer. Rob Jensen, tell us about No Goodbyes.
1: Um, so a long time ago, I was in the Army um, when I first started prosecuting. Uh, and I was, um, I had heard a story. I was, in a, I was in a Humvee. Why I was in a Humvee and what I was doing in the Army really isn't all that interesting, but I had heard a story of a, a a young mother, uh, a mother-to-be actually, late-term mother who was in a car accident and she died and the baby died. And it was a tragic story. And the the reporter was saying that the person felt really bad and was going to be prosecuted and was going to do some trivial amount of time. And I thought, that's, you know, what a tragic story. Um, And and I felt really bad, obviously, about the story. And then I thought, that's just ridiculous that that person's only going to do such a a little bit amount of time, even if they just felt that it was an accident. The the criminal justice system is just going to fail that family. Um, And I thought, you know, the gut reaction to that is somebody's going to want to get revenge for that. And the person who would get revenge for that would certainly do so much more time than the person who committed that atrocity in the first place. Hmm. And I thought, isn't that interesting, you know, that the person, (laughs) I mean, I grew up in a very tough neighborhood outside of Philadelphia and you know, anybody's gut reaction for revenge, um, you know, could you, would you be able to get revenge, um, you know, and and get away with it? And what would that look like? Um, And so that was the idea of the book And could you can anybody really ever get revenge and and not have any collateral consequences to that? Um and so that was the genesis of the book. That's one of the themes of the book.
0: Interesting Um, and
1: and the book starts with that event that there's a there's there's this accident, this young mother to be in an ambulance and it's broadsided um in, in the main line outside of Philadelphia. So that's that's taken right from directly from my experience in that Humvee where I heard that story. So, that, that is the genesis of the, the idea for the book. Um, the, the, this socialite that, that is in the accident gets away with it. it. It's really a book with interlocking stories. So, I was like influenced by. Pulp Fiction and Crash and a lot of these, what I found out later to be this way of writing that are these hyperlink stories or networking narrative stories, where you have several different seemingly disparate stories that interlock eventually, sort of the way Game of Thrones is written. Right. Uh, I didn't realize this as I was writing this 20-something years ago, the first draft. So you wrote this a long time ago. I did. I started the book in two thousand. I was uh, okay. I was in the army, and I, I, it took me uh, several years—about three years—to finish the first draft. And then it's, it's editing and editing and editing, and you put it on off to the side, and you pick it back up again. And you know, it, it's been this labor of love for for years. So, why did um, you decide to publish it now? Uh, it, it really was something that I. It sat. In a box. Uh, and then I picked it back up and then I finished. It's a trilogy, actually. This is just the first of three books. Okay. And so the publisher, um, I eventually finished the third uh, of, the, of the trilogy over the uh, pandemic. This, is a, 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 this was uh, finished through the pandemic.
0: A pandemic book. That's we, right. So many of them.
1: That's right, right. So the, the, I was spurned to finish the trilogy over the the pandemic. So um, Michael Gramman is the, the, the lawyer in the book. And so he is a, a, a man that is sort of beaten down. He's, he starts his life. Like so many of us, he, he married his college sweetheart and they have this idea of what their life is going to look like. They, he's a, he becomes a lawyer. She's a teacher. They think that they are going to have the 2.5 kids and the white picket fence and you fast forward and their life just hasn't materialized the way that they thought it was going to be he's frustrated and she's frustrated they suffer a series of miscarriages and fits and starts and their marriage is just not what they either of them thought it was going to be and they're both frustrated with each other and with their life and they don't really know where to turn and he has a Uh, a secretary that is way too young and way too beautiful. uh, And he knows it, and his wife knows it, and he is incapable of firing her. (laughs) Uh, A a mysterious client comes into his office uh, offering easy money. And in the lawyer, in the legal profession, we know that it's not necessarily the clients that you take that are the keys to success, but the clients that you do not take And Michael has uh, a decision to make and makes some bad decisions, as he's made throughout his career, and makes a bad decision here. And then we follow the stories that go from there. So like I said, it's a series of interlocking, interlocking stories that eventually take you together into the same network.
0: So if you were inspired by Pulp Fiction, I imagine it takes a pretty dark
1: turn. It does. Yeah. There's there's <laughs> there's violence, there's sex. Okay. Yes. I'd say it's R-rated.
0: It's an R-rated book. All right. So where do you leave us? I guess the first book then is a cliffhanger.
1: Yeah, I mean it was designed uh to stand alone and then I I love these characters and besides Michael and his wife and uh this mysterious client, um there's there's also a, a third setting um set in upstate Pennsylvania where you have this small sheriff's department with this uh, sheriff and his deputy and some of the folks set in this small town of uh, hunting community, uh, a series of cabins up in upstate Pennsylvania and this mainline community outside of Philadelphia. And each one of them have their own dynamic and the way they interact with each other. Um, uh, So the idea here is that If I can if I can take a a step back, Alice. Um, you know, as we grow up, my my whole idea of good versus evil, and all of us, I guess, as we grow up, was, you know, we teach our kids, hey, do good and don't do bad. And, you know, when we grew up, you know, it was so easy. The the good guy was wearing the white hat and the bad guy was wearing the black hat, right? And so, you know, do the good thing, don't do the bad thing. But as I became as we got older we realized it's it's so much more nuanced than that right yeah and when i became a prosecutor and a defense attorney it, it's so much more layered and much more nuanced than just do good and don't and don't do bad you know it, it, if we were just operating in two dimensions you know somebody does something wrong and you just say okay in two dimensions that guy's a bad guy put him in jail right right but if you start looking at things in, in a little bit more layered and nuanced ways, you start to say like in, you know, in Les Miserables and Jean Valjean, why does he steal the bread? He steals the bread because he's trying to feed his family. Right. If you start to put yourself in the shoes of people and why they are motivated to take action, now things are a little bit harder to say that somebody's just a bad person, right? right? And so all of my characters, I tried to stand in their shoes and I'm hoping that the readers stand in their shoes and at least understand the motivations for why they're acting. Um, and so there really is no particular protagonist, you know, so why does Michael do what he's doing? Why does his wife Sarah do what she's doing? Why do their characters take the arc that they're taking? Um, and then in the end, at least at the end of this book, is that satisfying? Did their actions make sense? And I'm hoping they do.
0: (laughs) But it's not necessarily, it's it's not as black and white. It's not black and white, obviously.
1: No, it never is. And that's what I learned prosecuting and then defending people. You know, there's the, the, the common saying that the villain is the hero of his own story. Right. um and i think that makes so much sense i mean if you can just kind of stand in the shoes of somebody where somebody was when they decided to make the decisions that they make now you've got people who are mentally unbalanced and sometimes their decisions don't make a lot of sense and right. they need they need help but many times you know when somebody makes a decision you might not agree with the decision that they make and, and there are times that people need to be punished for the decisions that they make, but, but at least you understand the decision that they make.
0: Right, and, right.
1: And that's what I found in the course of 25 years of doing criminal law, that just understanding the decision, that's half, half of, the, of the battle, so to speak. Yeah. And, and that's where I've come to. It's not, so, it's not so black and white anymore. Everything is the field of gray. Yeah, um, it, it's really just how strong revenge is. And can you, can you get away from, from really taking revenge? Does it, do you ever truly get away from the concept of revenge and the tentacles that that has, that, 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 that has taken in, in you, right? The, the old concept of when you take revenge, dig two graves. So this mysterious client comes in and it really does go from there. So there's a a lot of characters. They all come together at the end and there are no protagonists. And just like life, like look around, there are no heroes, there are no villains. If I could tell you that one person is carrying this, this story throughout, that's not true. That doesn't happen in life. Everybody is the hero and everybody is the villain. And that happens throughout all of these books. And, I, and honestly, those are the books that I like to read. Uh, I don't like reading books or watching movies where it's just one person and they're the only person who carries the moral center of the story. Okay. In my professional life, I have realized that that's just not reality. There are a lot of heroes, or really, there are no heroes.
0: When you look up your book online, does, does mm-hmm. the description give anything away?
1: It does not. Uh, Michael Grauman is a middle-aged attorney. He's got a struggling practice, and he's got a failing marriage. And against his better judgment, he accepts a a new client, and it offers him a chance at getting fast money. And it, it drags him into this web of deceit and revenge and murder, and it really threatens to destroy his life. It's so funny. Like, never is anything black and white anymore right like when we we're young everything was black and white and the the older i get the less i realize anything was ever black and white everything is in the gray
0: yeah
1: it's so funny i tell my son i'm like the, the older i get the less i realize i know <laughs> right <laughs> exactly. i know so little now the older i get can i say something else you absolutely can you know it, it's so funny people ask me, you know, are you proud of writing you know, this book? And I say, I've written for 25 years, I'm, I'm a lawyer, we write and we read every day. But you know, of course, being a published author, it's, it's a different experience, um, because this is, uh, it's, it's a different thing altogether. You, this is coming from my mind, and then it comes out onto the page, and now it's in a book form, and then I hand that over to you you read the pages and you interpret my words into your own sense and and then you're taking from that. And there's this sense of vulnerability um, that I, I just think is so surreal, but I'm so honored that people take their time to do that. I'm a 51 year old father and husband. And as I get older, The thing that I just value so much, and and perhaps there's other 51-year-old fathers out there that think the same thing. The thing I value so much is the one thing I can never replace, and that's time. So for anybody to take their time to read my book, I just am so honored that anybody would do that. And I hope that when you get to the last page of my book and you close it, you take a deep breath and you think, that was worth my time. When I read right. someone's book and I close the page and I take a deep breath, I just want them to know I appreciate that and that was worth my time. And I hope my readers are.
0: Yeah. And it, it, it left an impression on you. I like a book where I'm thinking about it. I think about that book. I think about that character. That character was so rich and so deep. That's right.
1: Because isn't that what art is? Yeah. Isn't art doing something that evokes some response? No matter what it is, just you trying to evoke a response from somebody. Isn't that what art
0: is? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank
1: you so much. I'm honored to speak with you. And uh, it really is my honor and my privilege. (laughs) You have a great day. Thanks. Bye bye.
0: No shortage of writing skills from our next author, Debbie Bradshaw Bedoy, which came in handy when she decided to share some painful personal experiences in her book, Dethroning Your Personal Tyrants. So you're you're an educator, correct?
2: I'm an education consultant. So I um, consult with area universities. So I'm not actually at one university, but I do instruct writing. And I also help with undergrad and graduate level critical writing analysis, as well as recruiting people to get into college. My book, I would say, was really from the backbone of my own personal experience and anecdotes. But because I have that writing skill and that writing background and instruct writing, it, that it sort of manifested. It was like the genesis of my past and then kind of culminated from there. Because
0: it's interesting, it's about you know releasing emotional blocks and negative events and people and relationships. Yep. All of those things can block you
2: from writing, absolutely, or from expressing absolutely. yourself creatively. Yes. As I mentioned before, it was a culmination of years of wounds from a painful past. And through my journey of like therapy and extensive um, research on emotional healing with um, actual psychologists and then as well as some experts who I reference in my book. Um, I began to, it sort of was a journal exercise for me personally, and then through the art of journaling, because I instruct writing, it, it, it kind of took on a, um, a beast of its own, so to speak. And it manifested into a book on personal growth. Okay. And so, although, you know, through this journey, I, I write about my anecdotes that help bring me clarity um, during a, a painful time in my past. But through those anecdotes, it's pretty much the foundation of the journey that helped me heal to dethrone the tyrants in one's life. And then it, I, I offer a sort of, you know, chapters outlining wh- what helped me bring me clarity and help me bring me into where I am today and whole and heal and peaceful Um, And I feel like that when when we talk about tyrants, you know, it's such a strong word. Tyrants don't always have to be people. They, they, you know, I referenced this in my book for me, it was individuals, it was broken relationships, it was, you know, abandonment issues, it was all of this. Okay, but and everybody has a story, obviously. Uh, but tyrants also could be painful memories, events, it could be uh, personal addictions or vices that people uh, remain held hostage, so to speak, uh, and stagnant in their life. And it prevents an individual for moving forward in a healthy manner. So in the introduction of my book, it um, outlines the purpose for my story. And then um, I have a prologue, which actually uh, discusses years from all the way back till I was three and a half. I'm, I'm in my late fifties now. So it's been a journey of a, like a 50 year healing, what? you know, and some people never give it over that. And then how those effects during childhood, um, really were brought into all of my adult relationships. Like what,
0: do you mind me asking what happened?
2: Sure. Um no, not at all. So in the I would say in the very beginning uh, my mother abandoned my siblings and I um it they kind of manifested from from abandonment issues and you're gonna you're gonna read about that and our readers will read about that in the introduction in my story that that was sort of the birth of this book because of the abandonment issues she my father was very present in my life through I throughout my entire life but my mother sort of came in and out and uh she left my father two three times he divorced her but he also brought her back okay and um through this journey, she also brought a lot of destruction into our lives through that abandonment. Um, and, and as you go through the book, you, you, you will, it, it kind of outlines what the effects of that did on our family, not just me, but our family. And later on in, in my father's life um, after he developed Parkinson's, just what she did to him by him, succumbing to her as a bit of he she was his kryptonite i should say um and and so Witnessing that, I kind of you know take the reader on that the journey of those abandonment issues were brought also into my own my own relationships and and uh, with an ex husband and uh, you know another reconnection and um, how I viewed relationships after that because broken individuals unless you're healed they you attract um, unhealed people, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so um, and during my life, what I had to do is learn how to dethrone what was what the tyrants who were who were and my biggest was my mother, obviously, hmm. that tyrant of that stagnant that was keeping me I didn't realize it was holding me from moving forward. And then I developed codependencies on anybody else in my relationship, because I became an overgiver, an overpleaser um, during that time period because I I screamed that I wasn't enough for my mother. She kept abandoning us, okay? So how am I supposed to be enough for anybody? Okay, and so you develop as an individual, you develop perfectionism, you develop ways where you can you just continue to to rise and and be the best you can be because there was a void that happened in your life. And until you can take your throne back of your life, um, and I'm just saying I'm using my experience, everybody is different until you can take your power back, Alice, then through the book, it outlines how I did that, okay, after years and years of just, you know, being on kind of like an emotional hamster wheel of codependencies, and not really realizing my own self-worth through that journey and then dethroning those tyrants that were keeping me from living whole and healthy and recognizing what an actual normal relationship was because I did not have that model in my life on the, in those formative years.
0: How long did, before you were able to get help?
2: Uh, so I would say I was in my forties and I began the process of, I knew that I was struggling through this. I also in my twenties and I, I explained that, uh, when I left Cincinnati and I went to California to attend college, and then I got into a relationship very fast and I kind of trauma bonded with another individual. He was kind of my first love and I referenced him. Of course, names have been changed Um, and he also had a very tumultuous upbringing and that is explored through the book as well. And again, uh, again, Alice, you know, because I couldn't recognize that as I progressed through, years of adulthood i couldn't i couldn't recognize it i was just i was i kept attracting broken men or broken individuals because i was broken and i couldn't you know so it it trauma bonds you and it doesn't make it right two two wrongs don't make a right obviously right um and so what happened to me is i developed a bladder condition when i was in california in the 80s and um and, I, and it sort of kind of uh, hindered my ability to move on with this individual. And I moved back to Cincinnati to start, you know, getting myself healthy and whole again. I also explore that in the book. I have interstitial cystitis. And it, it wasn't recognized by the medical community until the late 80s. And until I could get myself healthy and whole, I actually started seeing a pain psychologist during that time that I was... Um, you know, trying to get healthy physically. And that's when I kind of started recognizing things, but I was so focused on my health at that time. But I would say as far as my emotional healing, it probably wasn't until after I was married 22 years, divorced, and then I went on that journey of healing.
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So it must be really important for you to try to reach the people who need this book the most
2: absolutely because i feel like like i referenced it's not it's about letting go of a painful past it's about first of all you have to forgive yourself right and then you can forgive others and that is you know making the commitment to to forgive yourself for for allowing all of that baggage to keep you held hostage for decades you have to forgive yourself for that, okay? And then you start, because obviously, you know, y- y- there's an old cliche that they say, you know, you can you can harvest bitterness and be scorned, but it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, right? Um, and, and what I've had to learn to do is release that these individuals in my life you know, who those who offended the memories, the events, whatever, they're not losing sleep over the offense. Okay. And karma doesn't miss anybody's address. Okay. So even though I've had to detoxify my life as well, and the the dethrone those individuals out of my life, I know that I'm, I'm better and I'm healthier and stronger for it. And I know that they're not losing sleep over what they've done because I have to almost have pity on them because they're unhealed and they're hurt, okay? So the hurt starts somewhere. Hurt people hurt people, right? right? So, um, and, and it, it took me a lot of years, a lot of, you know, educating myself and then therapy. And I honestly, Alice, I was in therapy maybe five years. Um, but, but through that five year time period, the exercise, the thing that was so therapeutic for me was writing. So it it manifested into, this has been, I, I, I had a little bit of a fear of the unknown how to, you know, Oh, it's not necessarily a memoir, but there had to be a foundation of my personal experience so that the reader is looking through the lens of my life Okay, but then, uh, you know, it's outlined with making the commitment to free yourself. How did I do that? Making that, you know, and then forgiving myself first and then and then others. And then, you know, of course, the biggest chapter in the book is uh, dethroning your personal tyrants and taking back your personal power and uh, and then understanding your wounded self and then actions to practice self-love and. And, and all of this is outlined in in sort of compartmentalized and then going back to reference my experiences in my past and then how I I went on that journey to do each one of those steps. Thank you for sharing all of this. And oh. funny that you
0: become a writing teacher, you know, and you encourage kids, students to write every day. That's kind of amazing that your life kind of completed the circle
2: let me tell you what my my baby is i would say is so as an educational consultant i I mentioned to you so i i really work with like college level and but one of the things i've been doing as an independent consultant for 30 years is i help students with the college essay to get into um college okay And I I've developed my own format of, because i work worked with admissions all over the United States, I know exactly what they want to see. And so one of the things that whenever I sit down and I frame that, the art of writing the perfect college essay, I go over with students and talk to them about that no university wants to see sunshine and roses and unicorns and lollipops because that's just not real, right. okay? We want to see who you are and if you're able to, you know, accept the challenge uh, of what university life is going to be like. And are you going to be a critical thinker and problem solver? And so I taught people how to write about a challenge that they've overcome and then where they are. So I feel like uh, as on my journey to, like, you know, advocate for this, for students to write like that, I had to take a piece of my own advice and write like that and share
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing with me.
2: You're so welcome, Alice. I appreciate the interview.
0: You got it. You have a great day.
2: You too. All right. Bye-bye.
0: Carrie Rickert is a trauma and business coach who brings her own personal trauma and experience to the table in her book, Trauma is a Catalyst. Tell us what happened last summer that made you decide to write this book.
3: Um, I had taken part in an anthology, and I wrote a chapter for that, and it was on stories of traumatic brain injuries, survivors, and the importance of post-acute care, and with the publication of that book, I thought, you know what, I really can tell my story in a bigger way than this, and so that's that's what was the catalyst for writing Trauma is a Catalyst.
0: <laughs> what What is your story?
3: So Trauma is a Catalyst is about my life-changing car accident um, and subsequent brain injury, as well as lots and lots of other things that um, occurred as a result of the accident. And it goes through it actually the first part of the book is my mom's journal entries from when i was in the hospital
0: how old were you
3: 37 i was um newly separated um i had two kids that were eight and four at the time so the first part of the book is is my mom's um it is my mom's journal entry. So it's really from her perspective, what was going on with me. Um, and then the second part of the book is is a blog that I wrote um, that, that I wrote during that first post-acute recovery period. Um, and that was me processing through all of the things that had changed for me as a result of this accident, both good and bad, and, you know, how I was sort of managing my life as a person who had experienced this kind of severe trauma. And then the last part is, is really like more me now. Um, so it's kind of a culmination of all of those things that I have learned along the way. Um, and, you know, how it's all kind of shaken out and and how i am continuing to learn and grow
0: what's the most significant thing that you share in this book
3: um i think the most significant thing is just a sense of connection and a spark of hope um trauma can be really isolating as people are going through trauma they've feel like they are all alone, even if they have a tremendous support system, which I did. I had a wonderful support system. And yet, I still felt like I no one really understood what I was going through. And I think part of that is because people don't really talk about their traumatic experiences. Um, so I feel like by talking about my trauma, it gives me an opportunity to um to really give people that sense of connection to show them that they are not alone and you know to give them a spark of hope like i managed to overcome this there's no reason that you can't overcome your challenges this was a car accident
0: yes and like what do you remember (laughs)
3: <laughs> very little um i remember actually my last memory of the day is riding down the elevator with my friend and coworker emily who was actually in the car accident with me and our conversation in the elevator i don't remember getting in the car i don't remember driving i don't remember the accident at all it was um evidently raining really really hard and i hydroplaned into the back of a tractor trailer oh my
0: gosh yes now what did you do before the accident What, what what was your career
3: um i was a management consultant um i i worked at a small management consulting firm in baltimore And, um, you know, it was a very high paced, fun kind of atmosphere. I got to work with clients all over the state of Maryland and, um, you know, and with the goal of helping them grow.
0: And were you able, you were not able to go back to doing that?
3: I tried. Um, I, I tried and probably tried way too soon. Um, but I, I have a you know like i have a, a serious drive and lots of perseverance so i thought oh okay i can do this and two weeks into it i was like and i really can't do this at this time like i'm not ready
0: how long did it take you to to recover
3: so i was in acute care in the hospital for 4 weeks and then I was in rehab hospital for another two weeks, and then I was released home. Um, I I had to have another couple of surgeries, Um, but for the most part, I was released home, but that wasn't really the end of my healing journey um, at all. Uh, you know, there were a lot of things that I thought, okay, I can do this now, everything is fine. Um, And it really wasn't. And so I had to learn how to be the new me, if you will. Um, You know, and I would say it was probably a solid year of active recovery. And then after that, it's, i say I'm still recovering, right? Um, And and that's not to say that I feel like there's anything particularly wrong. I think it's more of a a growth thing than it is recovery. I think healing and growth can go hand in hand.
0: Uh, Were there things you couldn't do anymore? Did your thought
3: process change? The biggest change for me is how quickly I became overwhelmed and tired. Okay. So, I, I was very fortunate in that my brain injury, I recovered very, very well from it. Um, okay. I had some deficits, but not they were not extreme deficits. You know, I would occasionally misplace a word or, uh, you know, like not have it on the tip of my tongue. But for the most part, it was this overwhelming feeling of exhaustion that would hit me out of the blue. And, you know, and it would be after being in the car, you know, which that one sort of makes sense, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> after being in the car for like 30 minutes, I would have to have time to recover from that. Um, any kind of like go, go, go kind of day, you know, like scheduled things back to back to back would wake me out. Um, and it still does to a point, um, now it just, the, the thing that I have been able to do is recognize the signs a little bit better and rest before I get to the point where it's going to knock me out for two days. Now, are you
0: able to talk to people that have suffered trauma, this kind of trauma?
3: That that is actually what I I do for a living. I um, coach people that have experienced trauma and help them sort of build a roadmap, you know, from where they were before their trauma to where they are now and where they would like to see themselves in the future. That's
0: great. And you're able to share your book with them.
3: Yes, exactly. Now you have like a handbook
0: to take with you.
3: Yes, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's really the biggest motivation I had for writing the book was being able to expand my reach. So, you know, I can only reach so many people many clients right um individually as as one human being but my book can reach millions of people right um and so that that was really important for me um once i decided that i would write the book um, you know being able to have that kind of reach and to help as many people as possible because i do know how hard it is and having someone who knows how hard it is makes it that much better.
0: You are such a good person. You're going right up to heaven, girl. I'll tell you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. you thank you. It, I, I mean, if there's a good thing that can come out of tragedy, you're a fine example of that.
3: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. There has to be a reason that I lived through all of this. I mean, at least for myself, right? Yeah. Um, And if that reason is that I get to help more people, um, then, you know, that's what I want to do.
0: Oh, so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. I appreciate your time today. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.